Well, it's been last, uh, it was six weeks ago that we uh, looked at the book of Nehemiah. I'm trying to go through the series. Hopefully by the end of the year we finish the book of Nehemiah. A season to build. And we are up to Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the difficulty I have is because the six weeks ago I, I touched and preached from Nehemiah chapter 5, explained the text to you, but there are a lot of wonderful, great principles and an application that we can draw from this that I have no time to, to do it in the last session. So I'm going to do it today, some of the principle, some of the application on how to handle strife within, whether it's our families or especially in the church community, how do we handle strife? And Nehemiah chapter 5 gave us very, very strong and good principles and action steps that we can take to handle strife. Strife happens. Because we are all different, different age group, different background, different maturity, different likings, different theological persuasions, uh, different form of spirituality, because different age group, different experiences that we go through, and it shapes us to be who we are, and therefore we are different. And so we need to be drawn and bound and unite by something that is deeper, so that we can function Externally in diversity. Uh, last Friday night, we were studying uh, Ephesians chapter 4 in my small group, and uh, I was telling them that Ephesians 6 chapters divide very nicely into two portions. 1 to 3 talks about doctrine, and 4 to 6 talks about duty. And so Paul here expounds the first three chapters on the doctrine of the fact that now we are one in Christ. Now the door has been opened, the mystery of Christ has been opened up. Long generation, now Gentiles are included. Now it's one. Now the benefits of the Jewish view has been given to the Gentiles. And as a result, and we are saved by grace, not by works, and nothing to boast about. And as a result of all this, now Jews and Gentiles together, you must be united, become one. And therefore Paul is saying, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Again, with the context in mind, the Jews and the Gentiles now coming together. And then he said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body, one Spirit, as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And here he talks about one in Christ. There's this inner thing that binds us together in one. And then and only he goes about saying about God has given us different gifts so that we can function all in diversity. But united by this internal staff of Jesus Christ. And so strife happened. Strife happened. But how do we handle strife in our community? Churches have split, fights, leave, all kinds of things happened. And as we go through this phase of construction and changes, amalgamation after more than a year, how do we handle strife if there are any? And we thank God that Minimai Chapter 5 gave us some very good and important principles that we can hold on to in handling strife. So let me just give you a quick summary of the whole uh, situation and then in Chapter 5 and then I will come to the part of the uh, application part. In Chapter 1, Nehemiah was faced with a very personal challenge because he heard about uh, from Hananiah, the Jerusalem wall has burned, has been a disgrace. What is he going to do? Is he going to fold his hand, be indifferent, or 
What is he going to do? He knows of the situation now. What is he going to do about it? Should he just continue as a cupbearer and pretend that nothing happened, just go on his knee and pray? What should he do? And he probably thought about it and prayed about it with his, within his capacity to do something about it. And, uh, and he has to do something about it. He said the opposite of hate is not love. I mean, the opposite of love is not hate. But the opposite of love is indifference. And so he cannot be indifferent when he knows he's within his capacity to do something about it. And so he wept and then he broke out in prayer. And we know his challenge. So in chapter 1, he was faced with this personal challenge. And then in chapter 2, his challenge was political. Now the king asked him what he needed. And therefore he already, in his time of four months of prayer, he has already made his plan in mind what to say and anticipating that God will answer his prayer. And when God answered his prayer, he was able to tell the king exactly what he needed to do. And so his challenge was political. And then in chapter 3, when he arrived there in Jerusalem, he is confronted with an administrative challenge by how to work now. Now I have all these resources. How do I position all these people to do the work? And so he faced this administrative challenge by positioning the right workers in the right place for the right reasons. And then in chapter 4, he dealt with the challenge of discouragement. It's easy to get started, it's easy to get excited in the beginning, but it's always very hard to maintain the kind of passion to go on. It's easy to get excited about anything, but whether you can maintain that excitement and stay on focus, keep on keeping on, uh, is another challenge. It's a bigger challenge, isn't it? How to keep the flame alive as a believer too. How not to become cold. How not to allow the normal communion, the normal song that we sang 1,000 times to not just become dull. How do we keep our passion alive? And so he has to deal with the challenge of discouragement. The workers were afraid of the enemies and they convinced they couldn't work anymore. And Nehemiah rallied the troops to come together under pressure and he encouraged them and built them up that God is in our midst. And then we come to chapter 5, the same community now starting to self-destruct. The challenge now is internal, no longer external. They became to self-destruct because of some festering grievances. And the workers now face a new enemy who is harder to conquer than the previous ones. If there's any wisdom of the story of Judas betraying Jesus, is that the enemy is always within. The challenge is always within. Most of our emotional energy is due with internal stuff that drains you off, that you have so little left to fight the outside forces. And so here, Nehemiah had to deal with what is internal. And so let me just... Uh, Read through Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 5 again just to refresh ourselves. And then I'll give you a quick summary of the points that I gave to you the last time. Then I'll come to the point. So Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Internal now. Four groups of people here. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our home to get grain during the famine time. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. 
Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their cry, this is where Nehemiah said, when I heard their cry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continue. What you are doing is not right. Children, you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of Gentiles' enemies. I and my brothers and any man and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. How nice. No fight. No fight. How wonderful. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their house and possession anyone who does not keep this promise. It's binding. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, now Nehemiah is saying a little bit of himself, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lauded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officers ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Is it all? Maybe I missed out. Yeah, that's all. He only asks for reward from God, isn't it? Not from people. He remember me with favor, God, for I have done for these people. We heard about a complaint Nehemiah heard. There are four groups of people complaining. People who own no land but need a food. 
landowners who had mortgaged their property in order to buy food. I won't go into it because this one is, we already preached about that in the last session. Uh, landowners who had mortgaged their property in order to buy food. And then you have another third group of people complaining. People who complained that taxes were too high. And then the last group of people who were complaining were those who were wealthy. This is the group of people that Nehemiah primarily were targeting. Those who were wealthy, who were exploiting others. And their own very people, their Jewish people, their flesh and blood in a sense, uh, they were exploiting this group of people. And as a result of Nehemiah listening to this outcry, and he has to sort it out. He cannot ignore it. He cannot just sweep it under the carpet and pretend that nothing happened. He needs to do something about it. And so first and foremost, he heard about the complaint. And then the second step is what Nehemiah did about it. Now that he heard about all these things, what did he do about it? He gathered them together and he appealed to them. There are a few things that he did. First and foremost, he appealed to their love, isn't it? He appealed to their love. He said, these are your brother. Four different times in his speech, he appealed to them. He said, these are your brothers. He reminded them that they were robbing their own countrymen. This is not Gentiles. These are Jewish people. And Psalms 133 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. So he appealed to their love. And then he also appealed to their conscience. He said, Why are you doing this? We just bought back the slave from Egypt and Babylon and now you're selling it back to them. How silly are you? And not only he appealed to their love and conscience, but he also appealed to their morality. He said, this is not right. What you did was not right. Do we even dare to say nowadays that what you did is not right? Where right and wrong has become so blurred and so relative that we no longer have the confidence to say what you did is not right. And then not just only he appealed to their morality, he also appealed to their theology. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? You have no fear of God for doing that? Once I, uh, uh, once I had an accident, or someone reversed to my car, and I sent my car for, for repair. And part of the uh, insurance was, they booked a taxi for me to send me back. And so I said, yeah, I, I want to go home. So they booked the taxi, gave the address, and when I hopped into the taxi, uh, this man from Afghanistan spoke to me. He said, can you help me? He said, oh no, sorry, I, I, I make a mistake. I actually, instead of going home, I changed to go to my friend's place, which is just down the road, not too far from where the uh, repair shop was, so that I could just ask him to send me back later on. So the taxi said, oh, this place is so near. I don't earn much if I go. Do you mind if I raise another voucher and change the... Uh, address that you are going to this place and then you sign for it so that I can get more money out of it. I look at him. I said, what should I do? I said, are you a Muslim? He said, yes. I said, you have no fear of God? No? You have no fear of God? He said, okay, okay, okay. okay. So here, uh, he appealed to their theology. Should There's no concept of the fear of God in your life, that you are doing these things and yet you pretend that nothing matters to you, and you appeal to them. 
And not only that, he also appealed to his own actions. And he said, well, look at me. And then, finally, he appealed to the judgment of God. He asked them to give it back and not to demand anything from them and make them take a vow, ask the priest to come and take a vow that if you don't fulfill what you promised, may the judgment of God fall on you. That's what he said. And then finally, the third point that I gave to you the last time was examples that Nehemiah set. Nehemiah went on to say that while I understand this situation, difficulty, let's all join in together. He did not abuse his privileges that was given him. As I already mentioned, you want to know a person's heart, you give the person privileges. If the person knows how to handle privileges, you know the person is good. Don't just, just give them responsibility. Responsibility, they are paid for it, they will do their job. Blessed is he who has learned to admire but not envy, to follow but not imitate, to praise but not flatter, and to lead but not manipulate. And here, Nehemiah came in and lived it out. True leadership must be for the benefit of the followers and not to enrich the leaders. And Nehemiah understood that greatness is not found in possession, power, position, prestige. It is discovered in goodness, humility, service, and character. And so here, he, he was governed by two principles, reverence for God and compassion for others. Well, that leaves me 20 minutes for today's lesson. Uh, let me give you some principles to ponder over this way of Nehemiah handling the situation. I have four principles that I want to give to you, and then I have five action steps that I could get it from Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, some are quite straightforward, need not much explanation. So don't need to worry about the nine points that you'll be getting. The first principle is I believe that there is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. There is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. Nobody is going to buy what you're going to say if they see a fractured community fighting. Nobody. You cannot convince anyone. So there is a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. You cannot convince anyone. Will you go to a dentist if the teeth is all kind of broken up and will you want to go to this kind of dentist? No one. There's direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. And Jesus often said that the mission is not just a great commission in doing the work. He often at the farewell discourse talk about the new command I give you that you must love one another. And by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When I think about that verse, I was telling myself, technically speaking, I mean, of course not true, technically speaking, We, ha do, we don't have to do evangelism in the sand. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Because the community itself, the action itself, the love itself will be so radiant in a sense that it speaks volumes 
of words. As we often tell people, values are caught than taught. Every one of us has some ability to size people up. Every one of us has some ability to read circumstances, read situations. I often tell my youth leaders last time, you must prepare your homework because the young people are not blind. They know when you try to waffle around and not prepare your work. People can read. Every one of us can read people. We have the ability to do that. And women have greater ability too because you are more intuitive. Your antenna is very high. The late uh, Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, he said this in, in his biography. He said, whenever I interview a new minister, I often bring my wife with me because my wife is a better judgment of character than I. And on reflection towards the end of his life, he said, 90% of the time, my wife was right. My wife was right. And so there is this correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat each other. I think second principle that we can learn from this is relational problems are inevitable and we cannot afford to ignore them. Uh, we cannot afford to ignore them. You cannot just sweep it under the carpet. It is essential, necessary to address if... I'll come to the, the action part of it. It is not, not every issue you could address. Otherwise, you've got no other time to do other things. Otherwise, community will always have problems. There are some issues you, can, you should ignore. But relational problems are inevitable, and we cannot afford to ignore them. Even though it may be painful, it may seem easier to avoid or deny uh, relational ruptures, we must face conflict head on. If we don't, we'll pair it. You know why? It will go underground. And it will grow deep roots and bear bitter fruits. One of my friends said, the first price you pay is always the cheapest. It's painful to stop strive, but it will only get more difficult the longer you wait. And that is why Ephesians again say, well, do not go to sleep what? while you still what? Angry, right? Because it festers, it builds. Bitterness, resentment build up and build up and it will be too hard to remove it. Keep your account cleaned. Carl Truman uh, theologians say as humans are at once both righteous and sinful so human existence is at once both heartbreaking and hilarious normal life we live in a sinful world it's part of biblical view that we live in a sinful world it's like that problems are there challenges are there we just have to learn how to deal with it and handle it so relational problems are inevitable and we cannot afford to ignore. Imagine Nehemiah didn't address that, what will happen? The wall won't be built. And thirdly, we must take the initiative to restore relationship whether we want to or not. We must take the initiative to restore relationship as best as possible. Some cannot, I know. Some impossible. And Paul is reasonable, isn't it? As far as it depends on you. You can do everything possible, but sometimes it's just not possible. We must take the initiative to restore relationship whether we want to or not. Oswald Chambers, my favorite devotional author, 
my utmost for his highest. I gave many away for birthday gifts. He says that one of the uh, uh, quote he said the mes- the best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. And we have to to obey God. If uh, it's quite clear, oh, no, I don't have it there. Uh, Matthew eighteen talks about that as well. We must take initiative to attempt to restore relationships, sometimes even against what we like or not. Because obedience to God many times should precede over our feelings, even though it may be hard. And one of the reasons we can do it is to look into the person's eyes and believe that the person is also created in the image of God. And the person may be also deeply hurt by something. We don't know. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, says, Within the best of us, there's some evil. And within the worst of us, there's some good. When we come to see this, we take a different attitude towards individuals. The person who hates you most has some good in him. Even the nation who hates you most has some good in it. Even the race that hates you most has some good in it. And when you come to the point that you look in the face of every person and, and see deep down within what religion calls the image of God, you begin to love in spite of. No matter what the person does, you see God's image there. And when you are able to do that, then there is a way that you are willing to take steps to restore relationships. Because there's power in love. Someone say, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will not forget you. Love me and I may be forced to love you. When we seek to discover the best in others, we somehow bring out the best in ourselves. And so, take step. I think one another principle we can learn like Neymar, take step. Do something about it. Help them to reconcile. Help them to rebuild. Fourthly, God's reputation is at stake when we have conflict. God's reputation is at stake when we have conflict. You smear the reputation of God. Because Nehemiah 5, he said this, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentiles' enemies? You are the people of God. And now the Gentiles are laughing at us. He said. And how about John 17, the high priestly prayer by Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in one, appealing to the triune God of oneness, that the believers may dwell in one. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So how could the world believe that Jesus has come if we don't dwell in unity? I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Go and look at how many times the one appears in this high priestly prayer. I in them and you are in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them 
even as you have loved me. So God's reputation is at stake when we have conflict. So those are some of the principles that we can take with us in Nehemiah chapter 5. But I want to give you for the next 5 minutes or 7 minutes I have uh, 5 action steps for stopping strife. How to respond to conflict and complaint. I think the first one is important is to make sure it's a moral issue. Please only do that if it's a moral issue. Not just of because you don't like the song Oh no, uh, you know, why sing this song? It, you know, not the kind of non-amoral type of issue. Please go home, go on your knees and pray and ask God to change you. Uh, but we should only do it when it is a moral issue. Nehemiah was very angry because of the injustice he saw. Injustice he saw. You've been wrong and sinned against, your anger is justified. But on the other hand, if you are ticked off at someone just because you have done some, you, the person has done something that you don't like, uh, and it's not a moral issue, please go on your knees and pray. Don't, don't. Unless it's something that you have been wrong and run against you, you don't like something, you know, why, why the color is like that, or, the, you know, uh, please don't, don't. Otherwise, we will have trouble digging up every little thing to talk about. Secondly, I think another thing we can do is make every effort to listen before speaking. Uh, Nehemiah listened to them. He listened to them. It's very hard. I make a lot of mistakes in my life as a pastor uh, because I don't listen. Uh, I wish I could rewind back, but sometimes it's not possible. And you just need to ask God for forgiveness and try as best as possible to patch up whatever that you've done wrong. Make every effort to listen before speaking. Paul Tillich, a German-American theologian and a Christian existentialist philosopher, he said the first duty of love is to listen. If, 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 if there's many duties that a love is supposed to do, the first duty is to listen. Listen. And not just only passively listening, but listen intentively. And not just listen to the words, listen to the heart. Listen to the heart. And don't just listen to words. Listen. Listen intently. And one advice to women, if you want men to listen, you must tell them, please, don't say anything, don't talk, don't give advice, just listen, and they will. Because sometimes men work on agenda. The story is told of Franklin Roosevelt, who often endured long receiving lines at the White House. He complained that no one really paid any attention to what was said. And one day during a reception, he decided to try an experiment. To each person who came down the line and shook his hand, he would just murmur these words. He said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. I murdered my grandmother this morning. And the guests responded with phrases like, oh, marvelous. Oh, keep, us the good, keep up the good work. Oh, we are so proud of you, sir. Oh, God bless you, sir. It's not until the end of the line, while greeting the ambassador from Bolivia, that his words were actually heard. Non place, and the ambassador leaned over and, whis and whispered to Franklin Roosevelt, I'm sure she had it coming. 
Yes or no? <laughs> I think it's good to make every effort to listen. And this is a point that is not for use for myself. I'm not very good listener, but I'm trying my best to be a good listener. Sometimes that's the best counseling skill you can have, is to listen. At the end of the day, you want the other person to find their own solution. And sometimes, some people think aloud anyway. So you can provide them a platform to think aloud, and they will find their own solution. And that is what you want. They find their own solution. Your solution you give to them, usually you don't understand the dynamic involved emotionally and the situation. They have to find their own solution. So that's best counseling skill. And another counseling skill is never express that you're shocked. What? So uh, listen before speaking. The third point that I want to give to you is make it a point to think it over before speaking. Not just only listen, but think it over. Nehemiah pondered over it. It says here, right? I pondered them in my mind. He take time to think through it. He didn't just react emotionally. I wish I learned of this principle a bit earlier in my ministry uh, career in the sense. I pondered them in my mind. I mastered my feelings, it says. Proverbs chapter 13, 16 says, It is better to be slow-tempered than famous. It is better to have self-control than to control an army. So he pondered over. Anger is an appropriate but not a sufficient response, even if it is responding to injustice. Emotional distress was followed by intellectual reflection, which in turn led to practical action. And if you look at uh, Nehemiah, his response was at three levels. Emotional, he can feel. Intellectual, he pondered over. And volitional. The heart is moved, he was very angry, and the mind is engaged. He said, I pondered them, and the will is motivated. Then he, then he accused them. So he accused, it's not a reactive type of way of doing things, but pondered them through looking at the situation, listening to the people, thinking through what is the best way forward. What a good advice. So thinking it over, Nehemiah decided to... Did you realize that he... he, he uh, maybe I have this verse. See that? He says, and then he accused the nobles and officials first. He probably talked to them first. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. After telling them, then and only he called together a large meeting to deal with them. And that is my fourth point. Meet face to face. Meet face to face. Don't resolve things through WhatsApp or SMS or email. You know, email you can't portray feeling. Yeah, you can put smiling face and thumbs up and thumbs down. You you can't. You you can't do that. You have to meet face to face. One person leaves the church by sending me a WhatsApp. You know, until I have to call the person up. Let's meet and talk. Uh, meet face to face. Confrontation is caring enough about another person to get a conflict on the table and talk about it. Isn't Matthew 18 says, your brother or sister sin, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Face to face. As far as possible, do it that way.
face to face and talk about it. Last point. No, I, I make every attempt to seek resolution. Make every attempt to seek resolution. As best as possible. Sometimes cannot, as I said. Not every situation, you, but at least on your part, you do your best. Our goal in stopping strife or confronting conflict should always be resolution and restoration of the relationship. We shouldn't be set on proving ourselves right and the other person as wrong. We are not to vanquish our brothers and sisters, but to build them up and have the issue resolved so that we can all get back to kingdom work. Look at what he said. So this is what uh, the resolution uh, did by Nehemiah. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the approach of Gentiles? I, my brothers, and the many men also lending the people, blah, 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 give back to them immediately, vineyards, everything. And then towards the end, they responded by saying, Amen. Praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. There was a resolution that happened. So seek a resolution to the strife. Someone said, if you come at me with your fees doubled, I think I can promise you that mine will double as fast as yours. But if you come to me and say, let us sit down and take counsel together, and if, and if we differ from one another, we will find that we are not so far apart after all, that the points on which we differ are few and the points on which we agree are many. And that if we only have the patience and the candor and the desire to get together, we will. We will. And so find a resolution. And then God's name will be honored. There was a story about in an old monastery in Germany. I'm told you can see two wrecks of ancient deer antlers permanently interlocked. Apparently the animals the animals had been fighting fiercely and their horns became so tangled that they could not be disengaged. As a result, both of them died of hunger. Died of hunger. Uh, may we uh, take time to reconcile and build. I can't stop but to finish this with this story, right? A woman was waiting at the airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shops, bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see that a man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a bad scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock as the gusty cookie teeth diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from me, she snatched it from him and thought, Whew, brother, this guy has some nerve and is also rude. Why? He didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to do look back at the thriving ingrate. 
she boarded the plane and sank in her seat. Then she sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned in despair. The others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the root one, the ingrate, the thief. What I want to say is sometimes when it comes to strife, don't just always fixate it on the other person. Sometimes we may be the thief. That we have some wrong. And when we are able to recognize that, then the possibility of handling strife and the relationship being restored is possible. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you charge us to reconcile to handle strife in the right way so that the name of God may be magnified so that each one of us will dwell together humbling ourselves as Paul said be completely humble so that unity can be a powerful evangelism tool for others to see that words sometimes not able to communicate bless this community we ask this sincerely in Jesus name Amen.